We're back in the deep end, or I'm sorry, the Tim Hatch Live studio, and it is time for a deep dive. There we go. The Deep Dive Bible Study, uh, Season 5, Episode 2. And I'm glad that you're here. And if you are here, let me know where you're watching from down here in the comments below. And then also make sure that you're clicking that subscribe. There we go. Clicking that subscribe button. You don't want to miss an episode. And here's how you don't miss an episode by clicking that little notification bell next to the subscribe button. My name is Tim. This is Tim Hatch Live. And we are going verse by verse through the book of Romans. And I'm so excited to get into the content today. But it is... A special announcement that I have to make right now, which is it's my birthday and uh, I'm doing on my birthday what I was born to do, teach the word of God. This is the greatest privilege of my life to teach people God's word, to have people blessed by it is the greatest privilege of my life. This is the card that my significant other gave me. Happy birthday, you beautifully bearded man. <laughs> That's from my beautiful wife, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. And she did give me a gift as well, not just a card. But anyway, Good to see you on my birthday. I'm glad that you've tuned in, and may God bless you through the reading and teaching of his word. Let's pray. Father God, speak to us through this amazing text. Thank you for your servant, Paul, inspired by your Holy Spirit to write it. It's your word. I'm your servant, and everybody listening, including me, we're your, we're your people. So lead us, Lord, through the teaching of the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's head into it. So I said last week, Romans is one of those books that you have to study. You, you have to study this book at some point in your life. I want to say something personal too about it is, is that I'm, I'm 45 today. And I don't think that, well, this is going to sound ageist for old people. In other words, good for old people. I don't think you should teach this book until you're in your 40s. If I had taught this book in my 30s or my 20s, I don't think I would have done a fair job for the church and for the people that I taught. So the reason being is there's a life experience to be had that underlies the teaching of this book. And it's a life experience that only age and time can give you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think anybody can be equipped by the Holy Spirit to teach God's word at any age. That's, I'm not saying we limit people, but for me personally, I'm glad that I waited until now to tackle this book because this book is the deepest, richest book in the scriptures, in my opinion, because it unpacks all the other scriptures. And we don't want to take it lightly. We don't want to enter into this book of all books in the scriptures lightly. So that being said, remember three segments uh, in this show, three segments, what it meant, what it means, why it matters. So let's get into what it meant. Right to the Bible cam here. I've got my Bible cam open uh, to Romans chapter one. Remember we had t uh, done Romans one, one, all the way through Romans one fifteen. Now we're at one one sixteen, and we're going to start right there, picking it up where we left off. Here's what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay. Those two verses are the only verses we're looking at. And the reason why is because these are the theme of Romans. Back to the Bible camp. You can see I put it in my margin. Mark up your Bible, everybody. Your paper Bible. It's the theme of Romans, these two verses. Now, remember, if we just back up a couple of verses before these verses, if we go back to 13, um, he said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I wanted to come to you, but I was, I was stopped. I was prevented. God did not let him. We talked about that last week. And then he said, I am under, I'm under obligation, verse 14. I'm under obligation to preach to barbarians, to the wise, to the foolish, but I'm eager to preach. So it's the twofold nature of ministry obligation because I'm called, right? Let's go back. Quick recap. I'm called. I'm a servant. I'm called and I'm set apart for the gospel. How do I find my purpose? I serve. 
When I serve, I start to buy, I start to identify, oh, this is what I feel like God has called me to do. And then I have my purpose, my set apartness. But it's all about the gospel. Your your business leading, your your school teaching, your your kid raising, your marriage building, it's all to reflect the glory of the gospel evidenced in your life through the graciousness of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's get into these these texts. Okay, so so Paul has already told them, look, I want to come to you. We can go back to this. I wanted to come to you, but I was prevented. But but here's here's the deal, guys. Paul is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want you to realize that this man lived up to what he said. He lived up to what he said about about being unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I take you through a few ver- a, a few experiences from the Apostle Paul, and if you were if you were with us in season three of the Deep End, we talked about the Book of Acts, and around Acts chapter thirteen, Paul basically takes over the narrative. Its emphasis is on his bringing the gospel to the cities of the uh, first century. Rome, and he goes everywhere with the gospel. He is imprisoned in Philippi, and he's putting the stocks in the dungeon, and he's singing hymns to God at night with Silas. He is beaten in Thessalonica, and he is chased out of town, and he continues to preach the gospel in the next town in Berea. He is chased out of Berea, and he goes to the next town and preaches the gospel. The next town is Athens, and in Athens, he's before the philosophers. He's before the smart people. He's before, you know, the, the intellectuals and he preaches the gospel to them. He goes from there to Corinthian, to, uh, to, to the city of Corinth. And the Corinthians are obsessed with wisdom and, and power and, you know, uh, philosophy. And he preaches the gospel to them. And then he goes on and on and on through the book of Acts to, uh, bef- to be set before kings like Herod and, and leaders like Agrippa. And, and then he even appeals to Caesar and he stands before Pharisees and he stands before Sadducees and he stands before all these people, different people from different walks of life, powerful people, poor people, rich people, uh, educated people, influential people. Cities that loved him, cities that hated him, cities that mocked him. Athens, right? Athens mocks him, calls him a babbler. And no matter where he is, Paul the Apostle says the same thing. I'm here to tell you about a God who sent his son to die for you and was raised to life to give you the forgiveness of sins and brand new life. Here's the point. Everywhere he went. Why, why can we see this? Why, why can Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Because he lived it. No matter where he went, okay, he preached the gospel. So here's the question that I have for you. Do you understand the gospel? Because if you understand the gospel, you will not be ashamed of the gospel. And here's how you know. You know how you've come to a true understanding of the gospel? When you do what Paul does with his life, here's the answer to that question. When your testimony of God's grace is the same, no matter who stands before you, when you share it. In other words, you say the same thing in front of important people, in front of non-important people, in front of influential people, in front of the people you like, in front of the people that you don't like, in front of the people that hate you, no matter who you're talking to, the same message comes out of your mouth about your relationship with God. And that message is Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised to life so that I could have forgiveness and life in him. And I want you to get to that point. I really do. I think every Christian needs to get to the point where they are saying the same thing about what God has done for them no matter who stands before them, no matter what company they keep. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you that you have to always talk about Jesus all the time. And if you don't, you're ashamed of the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is though, Paul, he, he lived out what he believed. No shame because he knew that this message changed his life. So that's what it meant for Paul the apostle. Let's get into uh, what it means now. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more for us today. What did this mean? Okay, what it means, uh, and I think when we get to this 
this idea of not being ashamed of the gospel, keyword ashamed, there's always a temptation to be ashamed, is there not? There's always a temptation to say, gosh, I, I, I don't know if they'll listen to me. I don't know if they'll receive it. I don't know if I should say something. And Jesus talked about this. Don't be ashamed before me or my, I'll be ashamed before you before my father who is in heaven. When it comes to the topic of being ashamed, can we first discuss what being ashamed is not? What being ashamed is not? Because I think that we oftentimes put ourselves under this burden of guilt of sh- uh, that, that we're ashamed, but we're really not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, there's, there's probably something else at work. And, and the Lord kind of led me to share this with you because I have been there where I, I felt too shy to say something. But I've also been in places where I don't want to say something for other reasons. And I'd like to talk about what being ashamed of the gospel is not before we get into what it is. So number one, being ashamed of the gospel is not being cautious of when to bring a friend to church. Let me unpack this for you personally. I was raised in a crazy Pentecostal church. The last thing that I wanted to do was bring my friends there because you never knew who was going to speak in some unknown language and then and then in the middle of the service just interrupt and then, and then they were going to bring you down the front and maybe push you over and you never knew what was going to happen. Oh, and I also had a pastor who was ridiculously legalistic about everything and I just didn't want to put my friends under that burden of legalism. So there are times, Christians, when you don't want to bring your friends to church. Even Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, don't let unbelievers come in because they, if they come in right now, they're going to think you're out of your mind. Another example of when not to bring your friends to church is when your church is probably going, going through a struggle or a, a real big divisive issue. Like you want to be, you want to be cautious about that. If your church is going through some serious gossip issues, some serious divisions, and people are hating on each other, and all it is is just a bunch of people attacking each other, and churches go through seasons like that. I'm not attacking churches that are in those seasons. I'm just saying there are seasons when maybe you don't bring your friend to church then. Um, I think it's not wise to bring your friend to church when you're transitioning pastors. Uh, Again, I don't want to limit what God can do. He can do anything, use anything, use anyone, but I'm just trying to say use wisdom there, and that if you're using that wisdom, you're not being ashamed of the gospel you're probably just being very careful about when to introduce somebody to the most important message in the world, right? So number two, being ashamed of the gospel is not being more diminutive in your personality. Some people are shy. Some people are not outgoing. Some people are not in your face about everything in their life. And when it comes to the gospel, that's how they are. They are not in their in your face about their kids, about their job, about their hobbies, and then therefore they are not in their in your face about Jesus. Some people are diminutive. Let's not judge people by their personalities. Okay, let's not judge them by their personalities. Number three, being ashamed of the gospel is not a failure to bring up Jesus in every conversation. So there's this, you know, this this concept in evangelical Christianity. We always have to be talking about Jesus. Oh, I always preach the gospel. I'm I'm saying I'm sharing Jesus every moment. Okay, there's a good chance that your coworkers are sick of it, if that's you. Uh, my my friend Shane, he's also our executive pastor, he tells me a great story about this guy. He was pumping gas, and the guy from our church was down at the other pump, and he was pumping his gas, and he was trying to you know, blabber on about Jesus to this guy at the gas station, a stranger. And the guy just kind of got into his car and like started to roll up the window. And the friend who was trying to witness to this guy yells to my friend Shane, Shane! In the middle of everybody, Shane, he doesn't want to hear about the father. You know, it's like very, very obnoxious. There are people like that. There are Christians like that. You don't have to talk about Jesus every single day. You don't have to mention him all the, all the time. You do have to mention him when you are asked. Okay. You do have to mention him on occasion when you're talking about the goodness of God in your life, right? Get, when you have a chance, do it. But let your, let your conversation, uh, Colossians talk us about this. Let your conversations be seasoned with salt and think about salt. A little bit of salt makes the recipe. Not a lot. You don't put a pound of salt in a cake recipe. You don't put a pound of salt on your chicken or steak. You put a sprinkle. And when we talk about Jesus in our lives, it's a sprinkle. It's a touch. And that saltiness makes all the difference. Number four, being ashamed of the gospel is not being respectful of people who don't believe. So Christians, get this. Please get this in your head. You are called to respect people no matter what they believe. And we have got to, we've got to, 
we got a lead here. Uh, I can argue for what I believe and why things that other people believe are wrong on a, on an outlet like this, where I'm talking to Christians, thus the deep end yesterday. But when I'm in the presence of non-Christians, my, my primary job is not to sit there and tear down what they believe and disrespect them. So don't, don't disrespect me just because they don't believe like we believe. We have to love our neighbor no matter who our neighbor is or what they are or what they believe. It is not our job to vet our neighbor. It is our job to love our neighbor. And number five, being ashamed of the gospel is not avoiding silly religious arguments. I, I've been in work environments where people just wanted to get into an argument about faith, about the existence of God, about whether Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life or not. And please be careful, Christian, that you are not casting your pearls before swine, that you are not giving to dogs what is sacred. Okay? What, what Jesus means is this message is precious. This message is sacred. This message is valuable. And not everybody is willing to receive it. And when you identify someone who only wants to argue and the argument always turns silly because you just go back and forth like a couple of, you know, a couple of monkeys slapping and, and hitting each other upside the head. It does no good to the testimony of the gospel. I have been in secular work environments where, of course, the moment that that guy who wants to argue finds out you're a Christian, he comes at you with all of his anti-religious angst and he's just out to get you. You've got to learn, and I've done this on a regular basis in my life. You've got to learn how to walk away and don't take the bait. There are some people that only want to get you riled up because if they can get you riled up, Okay, they will feel like they have accomplished something in in their life. They they will feel like like they have uh, diminished what they don't believe, so that they don't have to believe it anymore. All right. So this is what it does not mean. Okay, when we talk about being ashamed of the gospel. That being said, let's talk about what it does mean concerning being ashamed of the gospel, because there is always a temptation in our lives as Christians to not share what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And I want to I want to tell you why. I want to tell you why that temptation is there. Because the gospel is the complete antithesis of of people's favorite religion. The gospel is the complete antithesis of people's favorite religion. What are what is people's favorite religion? I'm a good personism. I'm a good person. Ask the average ordinary American why they're going to heaven. And if they are not a Christian, a gospel believing Christian, I guarantee you they will say, I'm a good person. And they love to do that because that's about them. So the gospel tears down that notion that you're good. The gospel is not your good. The gospel is you are evil. Yes, you are evil. <laughs> we, we say, oh, that's, that's a little bit harsh, Pastor Tim. You don't want to say you are evil to people. Jesus calls us evil. He says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is heaven, heaven give good gifts? He says, the heart of man is evil. The heart of man is, um, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, Jesus says. Jeremiah talks about the heart of man is desperately wicked. Okay, there, there is no, there is no good person on the planet. There was one, there is one, his name is Jesus, and he died for all the evil people. But the gospel undercuts our good personism. It undercuts our quest to put ourselves on the throne. Because let me unpack this. This is going to be good. Pay attention. Listen in. Lean in here. In good personism, you are the center, you get the glory, and you are worthy. We talked about this on the deep end last night. Harvard recently elected an atheist to be the lead chaplain. He is the, he is the epitome, the archetype feature of a long winding road of Harvard University, abandoning her roots as ancient Israel did in the book of Judges, to, to, from the truth of God to the lies of humanity. 
The gospel of humanism declares you are the center. You are the answer. You can create, right? Friedrich Nietzsche, we have to recreate meaning according to our own inward feelings. And Friedrich Nietzsche died insane and sick. And people who buy into this, you are the center. It's all about you. This is the gospel according to humanism, good personism. Here's what the gospel of Jesus Christ says. God is the center. God gets the glory. God alone is worthy. Do you understand the difference? (laughs) One of them emphasizes you. The other, the true message of the gospel emphasizes God. And then guess what? Let's unpack this even further. When God is not, I'm sorry, when you are not the focus, when you are not the focus and God is, okay, guess what that turns you into? It turns you into a worshiper. I worship you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for loving me when I was unlovable. The gospel, and only the gospel, turns people into worshipers. What does humanism, good personism do? Guess what it does? It turns us into warriors. It turns us into warriors. Well, how so, pastor? How so, Tim? Because when you are the center of your salvation, when it's all up to you, here's the problem. Are you good enough? Do you make the cut? Uh, you didn't do good this week. You better make up for it this week coming up. Uh, you're not as good as that person. Oh, and by the way, those people over there think you're horrible right? This is America 2021. This is how we get into our little camps. We'll get into this a little bit later, right? But, but, but when other people hate you, well, maybe I'm not a good person. And this is when people fall apart in their good humanism, in their good personism, because when people hate them, they get resentful or they fall to pieces or they get depressed or they even commit suicide because their idol of self has been destroyed. And when you are the center of your own salvation, you have not just my permission, but you have God's permission to worry about your standing spiritually for the rest of your life. There are even Christians who believe this. There are even Christians who believe that your salvation is dependent on how well you behave after you come to Christ. And I'll tell you something, if that's the case, there's not a single Christian that's going to make it because most Christians, no, 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 all Christians stink at something in terms of obeying obeying God. All Christians do. The gospel turns us into worshipers. Good personism turns us into warriors, works righteousness. Does my spouse think I'm good enough? Do my parents think I'm good enough? Do I think I'm good enough? And, And we're filled with fear. Here's what Proverbs says, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. When you fear, that is, when you respect or when you idolize the opinions of man, you're trapped. The word snare is I'm trapped. I'm trapped by what these people think of me. And this is where peer pressure comes from. Uh, I hope there's a 19-year-old. I hope there's a 24-year-old listening to me right now. This is why you do stupid things when certain people are around because you have given yourself over to believing that your value is based on what people think of you and not what God has done for you. You've fallen into the fear of man. And if you get out of that and you trust, you trust in the Lord, there's safety, there's peace, there's calm. Let me put this up on the screen. If you fear men, you will be trapped by their waffling opinions. If you fear men, you will be trapped by their waffling opinions. Now, this is also not exactly the problem for everybody anymore. Because we're living in a highly individualized society where most unbelievers don't give a rip what other people think. They only give a rip about what one person thinks, themselves. (laughs) Okay, here's the problem with that. If you fear yourself, if you worship and respect yourself above all others, you will be even worse off because your own opinions waffle. So let's put that back up. If you fear man, if you fear you, if you fear yourself, your opinions of you, if it's all about what you think of you, guess what? You also have a waffling opinion of yourself. Let's just, let's just lay this out. Haven't you woken up someday, just hated life, hated yourself? 
Haven't you had moments where you think, gosh, I'm just a terrible person? And then you have moments where you think, wow, I'm really doing well. I'm an amazing person. It's called waffling opinions. That's the heart of man. Don't put your trust there. It leads to despair. So let's get back into what Paul says in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you know what primarily the gospel message is? It's a powerful effect upon the human heart. The gospel takes the human heart, brings them to God, and God saves. The gospel changes people. You ever notice how you can't change a person? You can't even change yourself. This is why every time we try to diet, exercise, get in shape, fix ourselves, change our personality, stop doing stupid stuff over and again, over and over again, we can't do it. It's because we can't. We are incapable of destroying those false idols and giving ourselves new affections. We are incapable. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to explode. The word for power in this passage here is dunamis. And it means, is the word we get dynamite from. Not a destructive power, a transformative power. And then this word salvation, which is sozo. The root of that word is sozo in the Greek. Don't miss this. Sozo means to rescue or save. So when the gospel comes, it has the power to rescue you out of sin, out of hell, out of darkness, out of despair, out of your own good personism. That's what the gospel comes to do. It doesn't, listen, so so important you get this, it doesn't come to improve you. It comes to save you. Let's get into this a little bit deeper. We need to talk about the true human condition. Because only if we understand the true human condition will we understand the power and the necessity of the gospel. See, if a doctor comes to your door, you come to your door, that's old fashioned. If you go to the doctor with cancer and You've also got a cut on your hand and, and the doctor looks at you on the outside and says, well, you got a cut. I, I can't see the cancer, so you must not have it. Let me put, the, let me put a Band-Aid on your, on your cut. That's taking care of the wrong condition. The condition that will kill you is not the cut, it's the cancer. This is why Jeremiah will say about the false teachers of his day, they soothe the wound of my people lightly. They, they only put a balm on. They only put a little bit of application on the outside. The wound of my people is way deeper than skin deep. It's heart deep. You have a serious heart condition, spiritually speaking. You have a serious heart condition, spiritually speaking. And, and, and so here's what you are. You are not morally neutral. You are enslaved sin. And this is why the gospel has to save us because we are enslaved. We need deliverance. I give you the words of Jesus himself, John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay? He, is, he said this about you, not me. So anyone out there practicing sin, anyone out there doing things you know you shouldn't do, you're a slave to sin. I bring you to Romans uh, 16, uh, Romans 6, 17. Let's go to the Bible camp for this one. Romans 6, 17. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that, to that standard of teaching uh, to which you were committed. You were once slaves to sin. Oh, by the way, and then you move from slaves to sin and look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God. There's no in between. This is so important that you get this because you are not morally neutral. You are not morally neutral to God. You are not morally neutral to the Lord. You're not morally neutral to, um, uh, to, uh, to heaven and hell. You are a slave to sin. So the gospel 
back to our text, is the power of God for salvation, salvation, rescue to everyone who believes. It transforms the heart. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, but to us who are being saved. And look at the, the present perfect here, being saved. It is the power of God. Oh, good news from this text, by the way. The gospel is not just the power of God for when you believe. The gospel is the power of God as you believe. So good news, Christian who struggles with sin post-salvation. The gospel is your power to get out of those repetitive habits. The gospel doesn't just bring you in. The gospel transforms you once you're in. This is so good. Because the deeper that you get into the gospel, as you will do so this this year on the deep dive through the book of Romans, this book is going to set you free. I'm telling you, the deeper you get into this text, the deeper that it it releases your heart from those deep-seated idols, idols of approval, idols of affection, idols of validation, idols of success. I need this to make me who I am. This is what makes me a good person. And the gospel comes in and like dynamite blows up those idols so that the only affection of your heart is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one that matters. Or the primary affection. Of course, you're going to love your spouse and you're going to love your children. You're going to love your friends. I'm not saying nothing else matters. I'm just saying you're going to love them purely and uh, biblically. Let's continue with the text. Paul says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this text here about the Jew first. Why? Well, because this is God fulfilling his promises. The Jews are God's people. The Jews are God's chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the nations. They failed. They failed repetitively, by the way. And uh, God eventually comes and does it himself. What they couldn't do, he does in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to bring you to Deuteronomy, Bible cam left, Deuteronomy 4, 6. Uh, it, it says this, keep, keep the commandments and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear these statutes will say, surely this is a great and wise and under people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him? In other words, when you do what I say, God says, the nations are going to look at you and they're going to be impressed and they're going to come to the knowledge of God. The Jews were and still are God's biological people, God's chosen race. They did not stop. Okay, and so the message of the gospel goes to them first, but it also comes to us through them. Now, we all come to God through the true Jew, Jesus Christ, and Jesus first went to the people of Israel. Remember in the gospels, he tells the disciples, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the foreign cities. Just go to the lost tribes of Israel. In other words, go to my people because they're the ones who should change first so that the Lord, so that the nations will hear. And by the way, <laughs> by the way, every Christian who is under the false impression that the, the Catholic Church started this. They did not. It was the Jewish church that started this. <laughs> There's not a single book in the Bible written by a non-Jew. Some people will say Luke is a non-Jew, but I disagree. Uh, Timothy was a half-Jew, and he didn't even write any of it. So uh, the whole Bible is the transmission of God's truth to us from whom? From the Jewish people. That's why I said the Jew first, and then it thrummed from them to us. Now, uh, we also need to talk about this next passage, continuing on. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness of God is the key text, uh, uh, sorry, the key phrase in the book of Romans. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written. Okay. What righteousness? The, the righteousness that he's talking about is the justification of sinners before a holy God. Now, some people don't understand this. They think that the righteousness of God here means that you come to the gospel and you're going to improve. Well, that's true. But before that's true, you come to the gospel and you are going to be approved. Does that make sense? The forensic view and the transformative view of God's righteousness. The forensic view is that God makes you, he declares you righteous. Though a sinner, you are righteous. Simo utis ek 
peccatore. Simultaneously justified and sinner. I just spoke some Latin to impress you, okay? And show you how smart I am. <laughs> what it means is that God has transferred upon you a declaration as a judge would declare a defendant not guilty. God has declared you not guilty in the gospel. Why? Because there is no condemnation. That's going to get to, we're going to get to that in Romans 8. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus took the condemnation for us. And now his taking the condemnation gives us liberation, gives us justification. And we are, we are declared righteous. And then yes, we transform. And then, yes, we become more like him. That's why under this text, I already have the text from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It is a forensic righteousness. It is an ontological righteousness. It means that God has given you a righteousness that you did not earn. That's why he says it is from faith for faith. That means that when you believe in Christ, Christian, when you believe, and, and I, I, I'm hearing some of you right now, you're saying, I don't know if I'm a good Christian. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins is the way, the truth, and the life? Yes or no? You're a Christian. <laughs> because it's not what you do, it's what you believe. Now, that being said, of course, what you believe will shape what you do. So these Christians who want to say, well, I believe and now I can just live whatever I want. You obviously don't believe it because it's not just this idea that God stamps some ticket. Look, even if it wasn't stamping a ticket, you know, you, you, you stamp a ticket, you get on the train, you get on the plane, you get on the bus. You don't stamp the ticket and then just sit there and watch the bus go by. There, because the ticket has been stamped, you get on because your ticket has been. So how do you get on the bus of God? You get on the bus of God by by going to church, being a part of a being part of a community, being part of a fellowship, giving of yourself, serving, living your life according to His word, because you know He loves you. All right. The act of believing, though, is primarily what we do as Christians. And then he quotes Habakkuk, and I want to put Habakkuk up on the screen. This is important. He quotes Habakkuk in, in, in uh, Romans 6, uh, 1, 17, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, let's take a look at that text in context, Habakkuk 2, 4, first in the ESV, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Skip, uh, let, me trans let me go to the New Living Translation. He says, look at the proud. They trust in themselves. And their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Okay. He says, look at the, look at the proud. And what I want you to point out, what I want to point out here is that they trust in themselves. I am a good person. I don't, I don't need Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I'm a good person. I don't need your stinking religion. I don't need all that stuff. I trust that when I get to heaven, God will look at what I've done. He'll say, yeah, you were pretty darn good. You were, you were better than your neighbor. Come on in. <laughs> no. But here's the point that I want to make that, 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 that Habakkuk asks us to look at. Look at the problem. There are so many people that are trusting in themselves for salvation. And the big idea here is, and the big need of the gospel, the righteous shall live by faith is, Everyone is looking for righteousness. What I mean by righteousness is rightness. Everyone is. Everyone is looking for something to validate themselves. I need a rightness. This is what makes me right. Now, in the quest for rightness or righteousness or a sense of validation and you know some sense of value, you're going to go about it one of three ways. I'm only going to talk about two right now. The first way is you will look for your rightness and moral superiority according to your group. And this, my friends, is America 2021. This is what we are experiencing in the political divide, the social divide, the racial divide, the economic divide. We are righteous and those filthy people are evil. This is what wokeism is about. We are righteous because we believe certain things and those people who aren't and don't believe those things are evil. And it just gives us some 
for some semblance of moral superiority. Do you notice how we divide about everything now? Do you notice how we make a cause about everything? We make a cause about saving the trees. We make a cause about um, saving the whales. We make a cause about climate change. We make a cause about our political ideologies. We make a cause about even Christians pro-life and and pro-traditional marriage. This is our cause. This is make. This is what makes us better than you. Okay, that's just moral superiority according to your group. Now, I'm not saying don't save. The animals, and I'm not saying don't care for the environment. I'm not saying don't be pro-life. What I am saying is, though, that if you are apart from Christ, you will look to these group dynamics, these group moral superiority dynamics, to elevate yourself above other people, and that's how you find your rightness. That's how you find your righteousness. I'm for justice. I'm for racial reconciliation. I'm for economic equality. You aren't. Shame on you. Silence is violence. It's funny because all these things have been hijacked from the church. The church did this for thousands of years. The church has a long history of moral superiority, according to their group. But the church did that being disconnected from the gospel. They just got away from the book of Romans, which is what we're going to talk about in just a moment. And when they get away from these these truths of the gospel, you get into good personism. You get into good us-ism and moral superiority. The second way we look to righteousness is moral superior, moral self-sufficiency according to you. And we've talked to nauseam about this. I, like, like, like I'm a good person because I, I do good things. Okay, like Snoopy the dog said, we're looking for rightness. I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than he was a nice guy, he chased sticks. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's this there's this heart of man who wants to say I va- I am valuable I am righteous I am right because I did these things and we will look for this and we will chase this. Um, I think about Tom Brady many years ago in 2005 when he said famously after winning three Super Bowls these words. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean. Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Four more Super Bowl rings and he's still chasing them. I mean, it's never enough. Like, Like when Freddie Mercury and Michael Jackson sang that famous song, There Must Be More. There must be more to life than killing, a better way for us to survive. What good is life in the end? We all must die. There must be more to life than this. We're looking for rightness. We're looking for rightness. And everyone is doing this. Everyone is doing this. Some of you are doing it in your quest for the perfect marriage. And because your marriage isn't perfect, you are so devastated. Some of you are doing this in your quest for the perfect children. And because your children don't do what you want them to do, you are devastated. Some of you are doing this in your business and you get ripping angry when anybody gets in the way of your success. You stomp on people. You step on people to make yourself more successful because that's your rightness. That's your idol. I bring you to a German monk in the 1500s named Martin Luther. He's over here on my shelf. I don't know if you guys can see him. Let me see if I can put him on the screen. Yeah, there he is. He's on the shelf right there. That's Martin Luther. He's next to Albert Einstein. German monk in the um, 1500s. He prayed diligently. He devoted himself to personal piety. He fasted so much. He, he lost all kinds of weight. He purposely went without sleep. He endured bone-chilling cold nights without a blanket. He flagellated himself he, he wanted to do, he did all these things because he thought this is what makes me acceptable in life and before God. He said, if anyone could have earned heaven by being a monk, it was me. And he realized that he could never do it. He said that that word righteousness in the Bible really drove him nuts because he felt that that word righteousness meant that God is righteous. I am not. Therefore, God is mad at me. So he went to a confessor every day in the Catholic tradition. He went to his confessor and the confessor got so tired of him. He asked him to stop. He said, you got to stop coming to me because enough is enough. You'll never get it. Like, (laughs) it'll never be enough. So he was ordered by his Catholic order of of monks to take his doctorate in the Bible and become a professor at Wittenberg University. This is in Germany. And uh, it was his lectures during... Uh, It was his lectures on the Psalms and his study on the book of Romans that he began to see something that he had never seen before. He saw that the righteousness of God was a gift of faith. 
he saw that the righteousness of God was a gift of faith. Now, please don't miss that because this is so important for you and for me. And as he read Romans chapter 1, as he read these lines, Romans chapter 1, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, and they, through faith, become righteous. Here's what he said. Look at this. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. His life was changed. And not only was his life changed, but the world was changed through this man. You Americans sitting now, you Westerners sitting now, with modern science, with modern technology, with freedoms and rights and constitutions, you can literally philosophically trace all of those things back to this man's transformation. Martin Luther gave birth to the Protestant Reformation. It purified the Catholic Church. Even to this day, the Catholic Church knows that his influence was influential and essential. I take you to Mark Galley, what Mark Galley, a, a, a Christian historian, wrote about Martin Luther. Every Protestant reformer like Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Cramer, and every Protestant stream, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, and Anabaptist were inspired by Luther in one way or another. On a larger canvas, his reform unleashed forces that ended the Middle Ages and ushered in the modern era. It has been said that in most libraries, books by and about Martin Luther occupy more shelves than those concerned with any other figure except Jesus of Nazareth. That's the explosive power of the gospel at work in a human heart. When you get to the end of your goodness and you stop looking to your crowd to make you more superior and you start looking to your self-sufficiency and you get to number three and you realize that your righteousness is given by grace from God and it justifies you. It changes you. It transforms you. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss. He was the original Martin Luther. He was a good person in the Jewish uh, religion. I count that loss, he says, rubbish, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness given as a gift through believing in Jesus Christ who died for you. This is the theme of Romans. This is why this book matters so much. So guys, there's nothing to be ashamed about. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel brings salvation from our real issue, slavery to sin. The gospel answers the heart cry for rightness. And the offer is simple. Believe and know this. And please root yourself in this failing Christians. The transformation is an act of God through your belief. From faith, for faith. Another translation says beginning and ending in faith. It's all about faith. Trusting in God. Trusting that even if you are struggling, the Lord is going to transform you and bring you to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, in conclusion, why does all this matter? Let's get there. Why does the gospel matter? Here's why. And every woman and every human can resonate with this. Humans need to change. We need rightness. And we cannot produce that change without hurting ourselves or others, without turning to pride and putting others down. And here's the gospel. The gospel says God gives us his righteousness as a gift upon belief. The second reason why this matters is that as much as humanity knows it needs to change, it cannot change. You and I cannot change. By the way, unbelievers cannot change. Dear Christians, please take it easy on your non-believing neighbors and relatives, because they can't change. The gospel changes them. The gospel is the dunamis, the power. Not you, not your clever arguments, not your stupid religious disputes, the gospel and the gospel alone. Humans cannot change. So here's why it matters, because God does it. God does the change. And the agency he's chosen to use to change people is the message of Christ, crucified for sinners and raised to life again. Power. As it says in Romans 5, 6. Let's go there on the Bible cam. 
Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still weak, we did not have the power to change. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, people can't change. God changes them. That's the power of the gospel. And the last reason why all of this matters is because if the church loses or softens or waters down or avoids this message, we forfeit our reason to exist. Full stop. That's how important this message is. Because this message, if we take Christianity and we turn it into a quest for moral superiority, as many churches have done down the ages, we will lose our influence. We will lose the weapon that transforms. We will lose the power to see God take sinners and transform them into saints. Not through us, but through the preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel. I hope this has blessed you. I hope this has helped you. Get into your Bible. Get into marking it up. I've already done that. You can see. Join me this year. Join me this season taking your Bibles out. Get yourself some pens. Get yourself some highlighters. And let's study God's Word together. Let's study the book of Romans together. Do me a favor and follow us on all of our social media accounts. It's always at or forward slash Tim Hatch Live. And hit that subscribe button. Okay? In two weeks, we'll be back with the deep dive. But next week... We will have uh, 10 questions with Tim. So next week, 10 questions with Tim. No deep end, no deep dive, just 10 questions. And then two weeks from yesterday, deep, deep end. And then two weeks from tonight, deep dive. I'll see you soon. God bless you guys. Have a great week.